Alison. Hi, Sarah. We're back. Yeah, Spotlight on France, back with a new episode. Um, though we're still not in the same physical place, you and I, COVID, of course. I'm at home, you're in the studio. Yeah, the number of COVID cases is going up uh, in a big way. More and more people are in hospital now. We seem to be living this uh, so-called second wave. Yeah, so um, are you wearing a mask? I'm not. I'm he Here in the studio, I'm not wearing a mask. But I have to say, everywhere else in the building, we are required to, as a, all officers in France are required too. Um, outside, of course, everyone here in Paris is wearing masks. Mm. And in secondary and in high schools, that's, I must say, really hard on kids, I think, and teachers. Yeah, and there's a bit of resistance, actually quite a lot of resistance to that. Um, and in general, there is an anti-mask movement here in France. It's much smaller and less intense than in the United States, but it's there. Um, and the other week, actually, they even surprisingly converged with the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests. Remember them? Yeah, I do. The, the anti-Macron <laughs> protest movement movement that have died down a bit of late. I have to say that here in Paris, most people do wear masks, even if a lot of them are wearing them a bit under their chins uh, to mm -hmm. have a smoke or, or to chat on the phone. Yeah, to have a drink, maybe not exactly the right way to do it. Um, the government's really been pushing the mask yourself, social distance, wash your hands. But, um, you know, suggestions don't always work here in France. People might need a bit more coercion on a cultural level here. Yeah, and that's what the French economy minister tried to do just the other day with a, a bit of a personal touch. He was on French radio and someone phoned in to complain about how the government wasn't letting them live their lives. And, and so Bruno Le Maire, the minister, he got COVID himself in early September and he decided to share his experience. Moi, j'ai 50 ans, je suis en forme physique, je fais du sport, je le pratique régulièrement. I'm 50, I'm fit, I'm sporty, and I usually run 25 to 30 kilometers, Le Maire said. But now I can't run anymore. Uh, it's not a mundane illness. It attacks your lungs. It can be painful, he said. It can be even frightening. So people who always say, let me get on with my life, well, when they haven't been through it, okay. But once you have, he said he reckoned uh, they would see things differently. So, of course, we're talking suggestions here, but if those suggestions don't work, um, in come the hard measures. We've already had a few. The government recently introduced um, measures in these so-called red zones. Paris is one of them, um, limiting private gatherings to 10 people or less, closing sports facilities and uh, bars closed at 10 p.m. Yeah, and that's based on reports that people going to bars and restaurants are four times more likely to contract the virus. And in the city of Marseille in the south, which has had alarming infection rates, the bars and the restaurants are closed completely for two weeks. Um, now that Paris's own COVID figures uh, have gone up and it's now in the maximum alert zone as well, Maybe in theory, the government is going to have to introduce similar measures as Marseille. Marseille's actually taken the state to court over this. Um, businesses have been protesting, saying they're being unfairly targeted. Rémi Aluega runs an Irish pub in the Old Port district of Marseille. Ils auraient bien pu euh, laisser ouverts les bars et restaurants, mais seulement en terrasse. They could have easily let the outdoor terraces of bars and restaurants stay open, he said, and carry out just more police checks. Uh, people are pretty disciplined, he says. I see no problem at all on terraces. We have the impression that we're being punished. 
And that sense of unfairness has also been fed by statistics showing that many cases of COVID are being found in offices and schools. So why are bars and restaurants being targeted in this way? Yeah, yeah. And in the background of all this, of course, is the question of another lockdown. The government insists it doesn't want to do that again, would be bad for the economy, of course, but it's now no longer ruling it out. And perhaps surprisingly, a recent poll suggested that French people are not opposed to another lockdown. Maybe they're looking for direction and and not suggestions. Yeah, I can understand that. And to add to the anxiety, France suffered another terror attack last Friday. A migrant of Pakistani origin attacked two people with a meat cleaver outside the old offices of the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo, where the 2015 attacks took place. Yeah, and the trial of those attackers is actually going on at the moment. And the suspect of this week's attack said that he was angry that Charlie Hebdo had republished the cartoons that were satirizing the Prophet Muhammad, which prompted those attacks in 2015. So Paris is now back on alert. And ironically, with all this COVID stuff going on, people had stopped being worried about the issue of security. It figured nine out of 10 on people's list of concerns. Top of the list was COVID and the economy. Au gibet noir, manchot aimable, danse, danse, les paladins, les maigres paladins du diable, les squelettes de Saladin. Sarah, when I say to you the French Pantheon or Pantheon, this 18th century monument in Paris, which has become a mausoleum for the remains of lots of distinguished French citizens, who comes to mind? Who do you think of? Um, well, in terms of who's in there, uh, Victor Hugo and, and I think maybe a bunch of military leaders. Yeah, the building's motto is to great men, a grateful country. That's mm. written on the front of the of the building. And you do have some famous writers like Victor Hugo and Voltaire, but the vast majority of the 78 people whose remains are there or who are commemorated there are military leaders and politicians. And most of them go back to the first French Empire in the early 19th century. So there are some women, though, right? Five, I believe. Yeah, five, right? (laughs) Five out of uh, 78. Uh, So not hugely diverse, but there are calls to get more diversity in there and for the Pantheon to be a better reflection of contemporary French society. Now, a petition was launched recently for the Pantheon to honour the 19th century French poets Arthur Rimbaud and Paul Verlaine. Ah, yeah. So they're known as the poet maudit or the outcast poets. Um, We've talked about them before, actually, on the anniversary of Rambo's death last November. Yeah. And we talked about how they had this tumultuous affair. It began when Rambo was just 17 and Verlaine was 27. Okay, it didn't last very long, but it did mark their literature. They were also political rebels. They were communal. They supported the Paris Commune in 1871. The Commune began as an uprising against the government, which then actually ruled France as a sort of direct people's democracy for all of three months. Uh, The state cracked down, and when the Commune was overthrown, tens of thousands of its supporters were killed or deported. And and Rambo and Verlaine, by the way, were some of very, very few artists that did back the Commune. Now, supporters of the petition say it's about time these two rebel poets were honoured as great poets and as people who weren't afraid to declare their love for one another. This is not the first attempt at diversity in the Pantheon, right? I mean, Simone Veil, the former minister, Holocaust survivor, 
She was moved to the Pantheon in 2018. This is a year after she died, um, so an important Jewish figure. And before that, in 2011, Aimé Césaire, the black writer from the French Overseas Territory, Martinique, was commemorated with a plaque. And before that, in 2002, the ashes of the writer Alexandre Dumas, whose granddad was a slave in the former French colony of Saint-Domingue, that's now called Haiti. He was honoured in the Pantheon too. Now, the French government seems to want to encourage more diversity. The culture minister has supported the petition and several former culture ministers have signed it. But it has encountered a lot of opposition. Hmm. Uh, I imagine it has something to do with their sexual orientation. It would seem so. I talked to Frédéric Martel, who helped launch the petition, and he does feel that the main sticking point in all of this is the couple's homosexuality. The Pantheon, a lot of people agree with that as to change. We need more diversity and more representation of French society in the Pantheon than just the old military figure. So it's up to the Pantheon to evolve, is that what you're saying? I mean, some people said, you know, you want to institutionalize Rimbaud and Verlaine and they were dissident. No, we want exactly the opposite. We want to disinstitutionalize <laughs> Le Pantheon. I mean, the reason why we ask the president of France to have Rimbaud and Verlaine in the Pantheon is not about la commune, it's not about politics, it's not about even their homosexuality. First of all, it's because they are the two most important poets in France. However, they were also couple. They were also gay and they were also communards. So that's exactly like Aimé Césaire, Simone Veil or Alexandre Dumas. Some people find that completely ridiculous because Rimbaud and Paul Verlaine, as you said, you know, they were involved in the commune. They were on the margins of society. They were a gay couple, even if it was only for four years. How on earth can you transplant rebel figures like that into something which is so institutional? First of all, you know, the body of Rimbaud and Verlaine, they don't exist anymore. We have more than one century after. So there is no coffin. There is basically nothing. So it's it's not about the body, it's about a symbol. So what we would like is just to have the two names and actually separate names. We don't want to have them as a couple, but mainly as two singular figures being in the Pantheon. And still it's somehow not appropriate, though, for them to join the establishment in this way. The Pantheon is a symbol of great figure in France. And great figure means also La Commune de Paris, because La Commune de Paris is part of the French history. It's actually one of the French revolution, like it or not. It's also a place where dissident, bohème people, should also be. I mean, Le Pantheon is a place where you have uh, Voltaire, Rousseau, Victor Hugo, Aimé Césaire and other writers. So it's totally fine to have also people that are writers in the Pantheon. Aimé Césaire was also a dissident about uh, French society and colonialism. Victor Hugo was uh, an enemy of the French Second Republic and imperialism. So in a way, it's to have also Rimbaud and Verlaine as a symbol also of being gay. And the people who think that's a ridiculous idea actually are only people that dislike the fact that we will have homosexual in the Pantheon. That's the core of the polemic. The polemic is not about la commune. It's not about poetry because we accept a poet being in the Pantheon. It's about homosexuality. And this petition was 
at the end, a revelation of a strong homophobia still existing, especially in the academic world, against the kind of interpretation of the work and life of Verlaine and Rimbaud about their homosexuality. And this is why this petition is extremely important, because it reveals that homophobia. And what about this argument that they're not an exemplary couple, if you like, as a gay couple, four years and it ended very badly with uh, Verlaine drunk trying to shoot uh, Rambo when he said he wanted to leave him, um, but also that Rambo later in his life sold weapons in Africa and that Verlaine was a drunkard who beat his wife, that they're just not even particularly pleasant people, if you like? What about that argument? You know, that's a very good point, and I think that's also the core of the debate. But the reason why we think they should enter the Pantheon whatsoever is because if you begin to look at the life from the beginning to the death of anyone, you will see failures, and everybody will have to leave the Pantheon. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he abandoned his kids, okay? So... Do you think it's a good example for France to have in the Pantheon Jean-Jacques Rousseau? And you can say the same with a lot of people. Everybody had some, I would say, good part of his life and some dark times. So, I mean, Rimbaud, he sold guns, that's true, but it was with the acknowledge of the French consul and the French minister of marine. So it was totally accepted by the French government. It was even the will of the French government. Verlaine beat his wife, that's true, but it was before the 1870s when he was basically uh, actually meeting and discovering gay love with Rimbaud and of course it's a very bad element of his life and many others we can have but we are profoundly against the idea of avoiding to celebrate somebody because of his failure everybody has a failure and if we enter this debate then in France we will change the name of the majority of the streets we will have to take out of the Pantheon the majority of the people that are inside and I do believe we make honor of somebody because of big things he did and I think the poetry of Rimbaud and the poetry of Verlaine is enough Rimbaud exists by his poetry everywhere in the world, and that's enough. And the decision whether to honour Verlaine and Rimbaud is now in the hands of President Emmanuel Macron, because only the French president has the power to decide who gets commemorated at the Pantheon. And this is French artist Babix singing one of Rimbaud's poems, Le Bal des Pendus, The Hanged Men's Ball. So some tennis sounds there. Roland Garros, the name of the French Open, is happening right now just outside of Paris. Yeah, it was scheduled for May, but got delayed through COVID. Yeah, and even now there's not much ambiance. They're used to having 20,000 people there each day. It was reduced to 10, then 5,000 last week. With the new restrictions in the red zones, there are only 1,000 people allowed. So matches are playing to near empty galleries. It's not being helped by this awful weather we're having either. No, and it's a bummer for tennis fans, but 
we can't give you sporting excitement, we can bring you a bit of history, as we like to do here on Spotlight on France. The name of the tournament comes from the name of the stadium, Roland Garros. Um, Alison, do you know who that was? I'm guessing he was a tennis star, right? No, actually, he was an aviator, and he was born 132 years ago this week, October 6th, 1888. Eugène Adrien Roland Georges Garros was born in Reunion Island, though at the age of four, his family moved to what's known as Vietnam, and then he was sent to mainland France for high school. He ended up in the southern city of Cannes after he got pneumonia, and he took up cycling to get better. He got pretty good at it. Also, football, rugby, and, and tennis, he played it. So now we have the tennis connection, okay? Uh, not really. Uh, he was just an amateur player. <laughs> he was sporty, a good student. He went to business school, to HEC. Um, his degree in hand, he started a sports car dealership in Paris. He got bitten by the aviation bug when he went to an aviation festival outside of Reims, Champagne country. He immediately decided he needed a plane. This is 1908, right at the start of flying. Roland Garros used the money he made selling sports cars to buy the cheapest plane he could find, a demoiselle or damsel fly monoplane. It was really light. And there were no pilot schools at the time, so he taught himself how to fly. And he got his license in July 1910. He flew in a number of air races, set a few altitude records. In 1913, he made the first non-stop flight across the Mediterranean from the south of France to Tunisia. It took nearly eight hours. He was flying 100 kilometers an hour. Jean Cocteau wrote about this flight in his poem, The Cape of Good Hope, which he dedicated to Roland Garros. And so this was right around the, the start of World War One. Yeah, yeah. And because Roland Garros was born in Reunion Island, which was a colony, he didn't actually get drafted, but he enlisted anyway. He was convinced that airborne fighting was the way of the future. So at first he did reconnaissance and bombings with the planes, but he was frustrated by not being able to fire from an airplane. So he helped develop a way to shoot through the propellers without hitting the blades by installing these metal wedges on the propeller blades, so-called deflector plates. And using this method, he shot down um, an aircraft on April 1st, 1915, and went on to win uh, two more air victories against the Germans. Um, though on April 18th, he crash landed uh, behind enemy lines where he was captured and spent three years as a prisoner of war before escaping in February of 1918. He rejoined the French army and actually insisted on flying again, even though his eyes had gone bad. And he claimed two victories shortly before he was shot down and killed on October the 5th, 1918, a day before he turned 30 and just a month before the end of the war. Well, it's so sad. It's always sad, isn't it, when we hear about people dying just before the end of any war. So he had a, yeah. a really short life and basically the father of fighter pilots. But why did he end up putting his name on a tennis stadium? That, I mean, is, is kind of random, I guess, and depending on who he knew, it was his friend, Emile Le Sieur, who oversaw the construction in 1928 of this new stadium to host the Davis Cup, and, and he insisted the stadium be named after his friend. He supposedly said he wouldn't spend any money on it if it wasn't named after Roland Garros. Mm, uh, and so that's why today the French Open is officially called Les Internationaux de France de Roland Garros, the French internationals of Roland Garros. Let's talk about 
comics, bande dessinée. Yeah, people like Tintin, Asterix, and one of my favorites, Agrippine. Well, we've talked about this before on the podcast, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm intrigued by this literary form that's so much a part of of a lot of people's experience growing up here in France, and very much seen as a legitimate form of storytelling, yeah, and not just for kids. No, no. Though it did start out that way,、um, the Aventure de Tintin in the late twenties was for kids, and actually、uh, BD started out very much in Belgium、um, until the nineteen sixties and seventies when France started to really dominate the field. Today, BD take on an increasingly diverse range of subjects,、um, and women are involved, which they weren't so much before. No, not really. Things have evolved; they're evolving slowly.、Um, not in small thanks to Penelope Bajeu, who last year won the Eisner Award, as kind of Oscars for comics. She's devoted to comics. I've been trying to write prose at some, you know, sometimes in my life, and I always find it so frustrating because why use a thousand words to say something every time I'm starting to write like a description and ah. That, that's a that's a waste of time. It would take me two minutes, and it would be so much more accurate if it was with an image. That's so silly. Words are so powerless. She started out writing and illustrating a blog about her life. She then made a book about Mama Cass, the lead singer of the Mamas and the Papas, and then Les Culottes, which is a series of portraits of women around the world, known and unknown. Their biographies told in words and illustrations. That's the book that really got her known, especially internationally.、Um, I spoke to her about her latest book, which is an adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. That's a very British book, isn't it? Yeah, but the book、um, and Roald Dahl stories in general are very much a part of French kids' lives、um, in translation, of course. Bajeux first read The Witches. It's called Sacrée Sorcière in French. When she was eight, she loved it, and her version now, which came out earlier this year in French, is also being released in English. Is an adaptation. It's not so much an illustration. And she made it by working with Dahl's grandson, who's kind of the keeper of the legacy. She says her version is personal. I really made this story my own, and the way it came out, I think, I don't know if it's French, but at least it's very personal. The grandmother in the book is really my grandmother, so she's definitely French. One of the things that I thought was really scary、uh, when I was a child reading it is how the boy put so much pressure on him, and suddenly he has to act smart in order not to die, and and everything is. Upon him to to find the witches and to to rid the world of this evil and to navigate in the world without really anyone super strong around him, and I thought that was harsh when I was growing up. But then the children today, they're going through ten times worse than this. They are asked to grow up so fast. They're super cautious about everything. They're saving water. They're they don't get to be carefree as much as we were. I think so. The boy in my story is even more concerned about everything. He learns how to survive a bunch of crazy creatures who want him dead, and to him, it's just another thing on the list of ugh, being eight really sucks. And also, what also changed is there can be a misogynist echo to、um, the idea of women. 
in disguise, hating children. That's been one of the critiques of, of this book, right? Is that, yes, it is these, these sort of female forms that are the ones who are the of the evil. Yeah, which is also why I wanted this to be very clear in my book that the witches, these creatures, they are not women. They're taking the appearance of women. And the women in this book are good and strong and brave and funny. And to me, the modern day witch that is a strong, independent woman, is the grandmother. In fact, in the book, there's a moment where the kid says, oh, grandma, you would have been a witch. You know, you're describing me what witches are. They would have burned you. And she said, yeah, probably. Yeah. And I wanted to have that little part in the story at the beginning where the grandmother explains what hunting witches used to be. You can't talk about witches to children in 2020 without having a word about misogyny. Obviously, France is known for comic books and comic writing. It's interesting taking this English literature and it's rethought by a French person. Was that is that clashing at all with some people's views? Like, no, this should have been a British person doing it. When I heard from my French publisher, uh, Gallimard, that they had an offer of the doll's estate to adapt it as comics, my first reaction was, wow, and they asked their French editor to do this? That means we really, you know, we really nail comics. We're, <laughs> we're really the country of comics. I think we have a very um, helping environment in France for creating comics. Uh, it's being valued as a form of literature. And the way people perceive comics in France, I think, is unique. We don't have series of superheroes where you write stories for a character already existing in a, like a legacy. You create your own stories, your own characters, and it's not very hard being published in France. There are many, many, many ways of being published. It doesn't mean that you're going to sell your books or that you're going to make money. But if you want to write your stories, you can pretty much always find a publisher who's willing to publish you. So we have a, we have a tradition of accepting comics as stories. So, so once you pass the barrier of language, once we're translated, then there's no reason uh, that it doesn't find an audience outside the borders of France. So there's this magic of comics and you've been doing this for a while, but what's your, how did you get into it? What's your personal interest in it? Were you one of these kids who read them growing up? I was uh, creating comics as a kid without really naming it comics, but I was telling stories with characters, with words and balloons and in little frames. So that's technically comics, but I wasn't really reading comics, uh, mostly because I couldn't find any uh, series in which I was identifying to any characters hmm. because there are no girls. It really was that. You Where were the girls? Uh, yeah, it wasn't. I never said, oh, I need to have girl projections. But I know now that this is why I wasn't interested. I loved Japanese animes because it was full of girls. Because the French uh, comics world was, is, was, is still very male-dominated. Uh, it was really a, a boys' club because the the production was aimed at young boys. Sure. You didn't give comics to a young girl back in the 60s. It was a little boy thing. And these little boys grew up to become comics artists. And you had to wait until a bunch of women arrived in this uh, world. And um, a lot of that happened because of manga, actually. Because then a generation of girls starting, started reading and writing their own stories and creating comics. That's a generation just a little after me. But um, yeah, I was always writing and drawing comics, but it took me 
maybe 30 years to finally realize that it was comics. As, as a female comic writer in France, I mean, now, today, are you able to just be a comic book writer, a bidet writer, or is it always like with a modifier, like a feminist bidet writer or a girly one? Like, how do you sort of navigate uh, that? It is, it is getting better. I have seen a difference between when I started maybe 15 years ago and today. I can see a difference. Right. But it sounds like there's a lot of themes also that you have to also deal with and, and subjects that haven't been dealt with, like talking about women and the culotte, like just profiles of women. So on some level, women have to do that work. Yes. The women in comics have to be the trailblazers doing that work because obviously for 50 years, it was a subject that wasn't really important. It was discarded. Although the final stage of it will be uh, that it's no longer a female subject because it deals with women. That's what we all, we're all aiming at, that someday it'll be just a book about amazing people who happen to be 30 women. But we're not there yet. That's it for Spotlight on France this week. We'll be back in two weeks on Thursday, October the 15th. If you have any questions or any comments, then please do send us a message to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And we also have an Instagram account now. We'll be posting some material from the show. It's Spotlight on France. You can find us, follow us, and spread the word about this program. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompeiani. You can find our previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.